All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City this week without a hurricane. It is the 11th day of August 2020. Uh, Before I talk more about today's show, uh, let me remind you that I am the author of uh, and editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can sign up for that letter by going to miningstocks.com. We always like to plug Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, go to chenpicks.com for that. And we also like to put in a plug for Michael Oliver. It's olivermsa.com. Michael won't be with us this week, but he will be our main guest next week. Uh, so a lot of you have been complaining about not enough time with Michael. Might be happy to hear that. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening, and uh, please send along any comments, positive or negative, or whatever they may be, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions at number four, taylor at gmail.com. Our sponsors for this week, which make this uh, show possible, our sponsors are Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., and Lion One Metals joins us this week. With the price of gold down more than $110 uh, a little while ago when I looked at the markets and uh, silver but down by, well, that's uh, gold down by more than 5.5% and silver down by more than 14%. That was uh, down 4 bucks a little while ago. Uh, I'm sure many of you are wondering if the bull market in gold and silver is over. One can never say never because there is always a first time for everything. But earlier today, Alistair McLeod provided some guidance on King World News that I think is worth listening to. Here are a few of the points he made, which are very much consistent with what Alistair has been saying on this show in recent appearances. First, he noted that we have had a massive rise in the price of gold and silver over the very short period of time, and it is likely that some hedge funds have simply decided to take some profits um, and to... uh, you know, just to reduce risk because we've seen such a massive rise so rapidly. And the fact that there is a shortage of metal at the LBMA and COMEX to satisfy the growing demand for physical metal, as growing numbers of investors are not interested any longer in taking futures contracts, that's a note that Alistair really emphasized. Now, after a, a day like today, perhaps there will be some pressure taken off of the physicals, and maybe that is the uh, the goal of certain uh, of certain uh, interests uh, in, no doubt, using paper to drive the price lower today, which is a game that the bullion banks have been playing for years. But Alistair points out that the bullion banks are horrifically, really short, uh, horribly short, as Alistair believes 
there will likely be one or two major systemical, systemically important banks in Europe that will exist exhibit some uh, liquidity issues over the next couple of weeks. Uh, he detailed uh, the supply shortage, not only for gold, but also for silver, and he noted that a lot of people who think they own gold and silver in ETFs uh, that have been unallocated, those are uh, ETFs without, un- without allocated gold and silver, may find themselves deeply disappointed when the markets realize that the cupboard is empty and uh, the unallocated people come up empty anyway. Alistair compared America's current position with that of John Law's Mississippi bubble, which he's done on this show a number of times, uh, and he said the, the only exception is that what we are facing now is hundreds of times larger than what was faced 300 years ago with John Law's Mississippi bubble. But the comparisons are completely alike, according to Alistair, and there's nothing that the Fed can do and nothing that they could do back at that time that John Law could do except to issue more and more money faster and faster. Keep in mind that there is no end of the trillions of dollars that need to be created to keep interest rates from rising because in order to keep the system from imploding, interest rates can never interest rates can never rise again until the current system fails and a new one, hopefully one built on sound money, is created. So those are some of the points that I got from Alistair's discussion this morning. The market started down pretty big. Uh, I think gold was down 60 bucks an ounce early before they opened in New York. And as I said, they're down more than $110 uh, on gold and silver getting hit even harder. Or silver has been rising dramatically in recent times as well. If you doubt Alistair's position, I would encourage you to read his latest essay at Gold Money. Uh, that's goldmoney.com. Go there and read Gold at $2,000. So why the fuss? In that article, Alistair outlines structural changes in the markets that show just how acute the squeeze is now for the acquisition of physical metals. The paper contracts that demand the metal have been created out of thin air by the financial system. As long as investors remain confident that the financial system and everything is honky-dory, the casino can continue to operate by creating money out of nothing and playing games. Back and forth they go buyers and sellers in the futures markets. But when investors who are long, uh, they want to find out, they want to have take delivery because they no longer have confidence in the monetary system, then it's game over. And Alistair thinks that day for the dollar is very near at hand. And given the box that the Fed and other central banks have really painted themselves into, the only thing they can do is print more and more money faster and faster. Now, again, days like today may take some of the pressure off, but the fundamentals of uh, where we're at in the U.S. economy hasn't changed. Please don't buy the notion that central banks can continue to print money, massive amounts of money, because there is no inflation problem. Well, Daniel DiMartino Booth pointed out in her Daily Feather publication this morning that food prices in America are rising by 5.6%. In China, they're up 13.3%. Prices for manufactured goods in China have fallen a bit, because of uh, a lack of demand globally because of the global depression. Uh, But uh, unemployment, massive unemployment in America, people can't uh, pay their rents. Uh, We're seeing uh, the Fed and we're seeing fiscal uh, fiscal stimulus. I wouldn't even call it stimulus. It's just money that's being created to try to hold the system together to keep, keep, um, you know, social order in place, actually. And uh, by the looks of things in Chicago and the other main cities, that's not helping all that much. Uh, we're seeing huge amounts of anger 
from groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa uh, that are clearly more interested in chaos than in fixing things, or at least maybe they've lost hope in the system. Now, my friend Chen Lin, who is a much better trader than I, sent out a, an email to his subscribers this morning, uh, essentially saying that he's happy for this pullback in gold and silver, noting that he had taken some profits recently and was waiting for a chance to buy some of the stocks back that he recently sold. Along those same lines of thinking, I took advantage of the SmackDown in silver earlier today to buy some SLV uh, this morning. However, uh, I would have done well to wait uh, until later in the day, that is for sure, looking at things now. On another note, we have a lot of complaints from listeners that I, I don't give Michael Oliver nearly enough time on this show. I think that is unfair to me and especially to Michael, who is already giving you more than you're paying for. Michael used to be on with me every week, but quite frankly, like most of us, working without pay is not an option. Michael has limited himself regarding the amount of time he has on this show, and you have to realize uh, that I need to interview sponsors as well because that is how, uh, how I get paid. Anyway, Michael has agreed to come on my show next week uh, as my main guest, so you, uh, you will have more time to listen to him. And if you have some questions you'd like me to pass along to Michael, feel free to send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Now, let me just make one further remark about sponsors on this show. The sponsors on this show have been handpicked by myself, and they, in every case, are companies that I personally have purchased shares in. They are also companies that I have recommended in my newsletter. So while they do pay the freight and while they do uh, allow me to get paid, I must emphasize the fact that, that there's a select number of companies that are sponsors of the show. And especially in strong markets like we've had, it's very easy to be selective and to pick out companies that are really, uh, really the cream of the crop. And we'll be talking to uh, Quentin Henning in just a little bit about one of those. That's Lion One. Just a word about my course that I've been uh, advertising, talking about here on this show. Uh, I've titled the course Investing 101, Gold and Silver and the Miners. Now, the first lesson, there will be five lessons in this course. The first lesson is titled Setting the Table for a Once-in-a-Lifetime Bull Market in Silver and Gold. And yes, I believe that's still the case, notwithstanding today's pullback. The second lesson will be a post-COVID-19 world and a fourth-turning demise for the American for America and the U.S. dollar. The third lesson will be different ways to own and invest in gold and silver and the mining shares. And the fourth lesson will be the basics of mining economics. I'll explain what you need to look for as companies are exploring and developing deposits, what you need to look for to give you a hint at potential uh, profitability and why uh, those stocks that are discovering deposits might do very well uh, in the future or not do so well. Lesson, uh, the fifth lesson, I'm going to have guidance from two professionals. Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me and Chen Lin as well. Dr. Henning, uh, who is considered perhaps uh, the most creative exploration geologist and one of the most sought-after exploration geologists in the world, uh, will uh, explain what he looks for before he gets involved in investing in uh, various projects. So lots of companies want Dr. Henning to work for him, but he's selective as well in terms of what uh, he will look for to get involved in a particular product uh, project. And Chen Lin uh, will share some of his uh, successful trading techniques with us next week. 
The price of the course will be $689 U.S., and you will receive, however, part of that, a six-month free subscription to my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I still have to record the five lessons, and so I hope to do that within the next two weeks. Given the time it will take me to complete this effort, in a way, I'm kind of glad also, along with Chen, that the market has pulled back. Hopefully, we'll have a little period of sideways movement here and a much better entry point for you for those of you who are not in this, these markets to get in. I've titled today's show, Take Cover, It's Too Late to Turn Back. Doug Nolan and Quentin Henning are my guests. Uh, Do- Dr. Henning will be with me in just a few minutes to talk about Lion One Mines, uh, Lion One Metals. It is a, a story that is really a fantastic story, one that I think has a chance to be a world-class Tier 1 gold deposit that's being developed in, uh, uh, in their mine. Uh, in Fiji. Uh, in the second half of today's show, Doug Nolan will be with me, and um, Doug will talk about the current markets and uh, why it's, uh, it's too late to turn back, why the central banks have no possibility of returning to normal. You know, the Fed tried to return to normal, tried to normalize its balance sheet. Um, Chairman Powell tried that. Uh, and uh, well, as soon as interest rates started rising just a little bit, the stock market had a hissy fit and there's nothing that he could do but just to start printing money, quantitative easing once again. And we're at and getting very close to zero rates in the United States. Of course, countries around the world are in negative, negative territory already. Well, we do have to go to break now. Um, but don't go away because uh, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me right after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Dr. Quentin Henning. Uh, he is no stranger to this show. He's been on many times with Noble Resources, uh, more, uh, more recently with Irving Resources. And today he's uh, with us to talk about a company he's an advisor to. That's Lion One Metals. So a sponsor of the show. It's one of my favorite stocks as well. Uh, the company trades uh, it trades in Canada and the U.S. There's 118 million shares out, approximately, or at least that's 
uh, my latest count. Um, selling at about $1.50 in U.S. money, down uh, 8 or $0.09 cents today, uh, selling in a very difficult day. And uh, I might say that that's not a very, uh, a very hard hit for a day like today when gold is down more than $100 an ounce. Uh, so it leaves it with a market cap, uh, the Lion One metals, with a market cap around 179, call it 180 million U.S. dollars. Well, thanks for joining me again, Quentin. Absolutely, Jay. It's really always good to have you with us. Um, before you became an advisor to Lion One Metals, uh, Wally Bachman, the, uh, who heads up the company, did a really good job in outlining a small but high-margin gold project. I think they had something like, oh, I, I can't remember the exact number of ounces, but they were, you know, nine grams per ton. It looked pretty good, but it was kind of smallish, uh, in, uh, and that's uh, uh, to the... Uh, Tuvatu, I guess is the way you pronounce it, uh, project right. in Fiji. Yes. Uh, then more recently, uh, you came along and what you saw there convinced you that this had the chance of being something much, much bigger. In fact, uh, what you call an alkaline-type gold project. Um, what what have you discovered since you become involved? Because a fair amount of work has, has gone into that now uh, to, uh, to examine your hypothesis. And, and what have you found so far? Uh, with the work that's been done since you joined the since you joined the company as an advisor, well, I'll kind of start out with a little background about the deposit type, and then I'll I'll lead up to that because the, okay. the, the you know recent drill intercept we have is is very very impressive and, and tells us a lot about what's going on in the system. All right, so um, many you know I'll say many geologists have the view that things like Tuvatu are what we call low sulfidation epithermal systems. Uh-huh. It, uh, that's a fancy word for hot spring deposit. <laughs> and hot spring deposits are, are formed when you have uh, shallow hot waters that, that come up. They often bring gold and silver with them, and they kind of cool off, interact with uh, you know groundwaters and stuff, and they deposit high-grade veins. But those those type veins often have a very limited vertical profile. They might be you know three or four hundred meters at most. It's not to say that low sulfidation systems are not a good target. They are. They're a very good target because they can generate very high-grade deposits. So don't get me wrong. It's just that there's a subtle difference between that and, and these alkaline gold systems that is often unappreciated in the geologic community. Okay, well, what I'm getting at is that these alkaline systems, uh, they're generally, uh, the, the gold in them is generally deposited in different, uh, by different mechanisms. Okay, it's not deposited in a hot spring de- uh, environment so much as it is by a rapid ascent from a, a deep-seated pluton or magma mm-hmm. in the ground. Okay, so what you have in, the, in these cases, uh, you have magmas that, the reason they're called alkaline is because they have a lot of potassium and alkaline metal. Mm-hmm. So these magmas, they come up and they park themselves maybe three, four, five kilometers below the surface. They start to cool, crystallize, and then differentiate uh, liquid. So, so liquid comes out of the magma, uh, you know, water basically, and CO2 and other things, but it also concentrates things like gold, basically elements that do not fit well into other minerals. So things like gold uh, and some other oddballs like tellurium, vanadium, and s- stuff, they they tend to get concentrated in these fluids. And what happens is, very very late in the the process, the pressure builds up, builds up, builds up, and then pop these things uh, have to make their way to surface. They basically mm-hmm. Uh, follow whatever crack and fissure in the ground they can, and they explode out of the ground, kind of like uh, you know, 
you know, a soda out of a bottle, say. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so these fluids, they come rising up very rapidly through the crust, and as they do so, they deposit gold uh, very, very rapidly in, and often in abundance because the, the fluids are effectively saturated in, in gold. All right, well, this, this is a wonderful phenomenon because it can generate some very high-grade deposits. The, the, um, the other aspect of these that one has to appreciate is that because these fluids are just basically forcing their way up in, into any nook and cranny, the, the fractures that often host the gold are, are tiny. You know, they're like mm -hmm. a few millimeters up to maybe a few centimeters wide. Mm -hmm. and, and so these are not big stonken veins like you'd see in many low sulfidation systems. These are often little tiny uh, but extremely high-grade fracture networks that you're chasing. Okay, so, so let's jump to Tuvatu. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I love alkaline systems. I grew up here in Colorado. We have Cripple Creek, uh, which is one of the biggest in the world. Um, I worked at uh, Spring Pole up in Canada uh, when I joined Gold Canyon there. The deposit was, I think, a few hundred thousand ounces, maybe four or five hundred thousand ounces, and we got it up to five million. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so these things often deliver a lot of gold. All right, so when I went to Tuvatu for the first time after talking to Wally, uh, this was in January of uh, 2019. Uh, you know, I saw what I liked. Uh, you know, about these systems, I saw that evidence of that very, very high-grade gold event in some of the little fractures and stuff visible in core. Okay, so I got quite excited, and, and uh, you know, the thing that told me is that down there somewhere, they're probably, you know, there's, we're probably going to find a, a root feeder. Like, think of it like the main highway uh, that brought fluids up from depth, okay? And when you find the main feeder, you know, and it, it's not going to be like a big vein, like I said, it's going to be like a vein network, a little fracture networks. Uh, when you find it, it's going to be exceptionally high grade and generally wider than the the typical drill intercepts you see on the property. Uh, you know, and that's that's what we hit a couple of weeks ago. So, so look, it took some uh, took a bit of science. Uh, we did some geophysics called CSAMT. We did some uh, you know some geochemical work. We did some uh, studying of the existing drill holes and data. And, uh, you know, what we concluded is everything that's been drilled to date are like the upper branches of a tree, okay? And those branches are coalescing. They're coming down as they go down in the ground, and they're forming uh, a trunk, okay? So, so our goal has been to find that trunk, the feeder to this system. Uh, we started some holes earlier in the year. Uh, actually, uh, back up, uh, late last year, we hit... The, we hit a very high grade intercept. We hit like 4.2 meters or so of 33 grams. It was a very, very good intercept. And it was really at the bottom of the system. You know, we could see we were getting close to something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so we targeted two holes earlier in the year. Uh, COVID hit. Things got complex. We didn't have all the drill pipe we needed on site. You know, without going into detail, it was, uh, it was a little disappointing because we had these two holes basically ready, like pre-collared, ready to go through the target zone. And uh, Typhoon hit in April. They kind of washed the holes out, so we couldn't re-enter them. So we had to drill a brand-new hole from service, oh. okay, uh, which, you know, it was annoying, but uh, that's life. So we started drilling this hole uh, back in June, and then uh, about late July we had an announcement. The hole hit 14 point, uh, what was it, 14.7 meters, I believe, uh, 46 grams per ton. Okay, that jumps out. Okay, first of all, the intercept is much longer than anything reported to date on site. You know, 14.7 meters, that's a very long intercept. 
What's the true width? Well, we don't quite know right now, but we suspect it's on the order of half of that because of the angle of the hole. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, still, it's a, a very broad intercept. Second thing that jumps out is grade. To hit, you know, just phenomenal grade like that uh, tells you you're in, 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 you know, you're in the root system, you're in the feeder system. So, um, you know, basically we tagged, we tested the hypothesis, and we've now proven it. Okay, so, so this is exciting. What does it mean for the project? Well, like you said earlier, uh, you know, Wally and his team had a very good resource there, a high-grade, uh, what would make a nice high-grade but, you know, smallish underground mine. Now, with this information, we can see that the system is wide open at depth. In fact, it's getting better, uh, bigger and better. You know, so um, this is very exciting. Uh, it tells us that, uh, you know, this, this project could morph from being kind of a, on the small mine scale to perhaps something much, much bigger. This is the same story that uh, Placer was faced with at Porgra way back in the 1980s. Mm. They were drilling and drilling and drilling at Porgra, and they were up to maybe two or three million ounces of, of we'll call it, you know, small loads, uh, like you see at Tavate. They were basically mm -hmm. a swarm of small loads, and they were debating maybe we should mine this in an open pit, maybe we should do this, maybe we should. And then all of a sudden they hit the high grade feeder. Mm -hmm. In that case, it was called the Romane structure. Anyway, this uh, and it was called the the number seven zone. Ultimately, that was a high grade uh, high grade uh, root of the Porgress system, mm -hmm. and it delivered a huge amount of gold. I can't remember. It's like ten, you know, ten plus million ounces. Very high grade. Okay, so so here we have a similar story. You know, they've been uh, you know drilling away for years now at Tuvatu, lots of small loads. You know, narrow. When I say small, I mean narrowish kind of loads. And, uh, you know, here we finally slammed into the, uh, the, what appears to be a root feeder to, is this all we're going to find? Look, I don't think so, because the CSAMT tells us the uh, feeder system is pretty extensive down there. Uh, so mm -hmm. we, we're very, I'm very optimistic. I'll say that uh, this thing is going to lead to bigger and better uh, news over time. Right. And, uh, I mean, you, this is a potentially a very large target, I believe, uh, the company recently picked up some more ground, I think, um, maybe over the last couple of years. Uh, and as I understand it, it, you're looking at something like seven kilometers of strike, possibly? That's right. Look, uh, you know, they did pick up the, the Yes, they picked up the Navalawa tenement, uh, which is to the north. And Navalawa has the same geology as Tuvatu. We're finding loads at surface. You know, they're, they're excavating up there right now, trenches and, and road cuts, and they're seeing very similar mineralization up there. It's exciting, uh, but again, we're at the top of the system. Okay, so it's going to take some uh, some creative drilling to drill down and get that target, that uh, feeder type target, at depth. But uh, I'm very, very confident it's there at this point. I think this is an enormous system, and I think uh, over the next couple of years, as we explore this thing, it'll be very clear that it's uh, it's much larger, but also much higher grade down in that that root feeder zone. Uh, what does that mean for the price? Well, it means you're not going to have a mine that cranks out. You know, uh, say sub hundred thousand ounces, you you might have something that generates uh, considerably more gold and at a much much better grade, and you know, resulting lower margin or sorry, uh, higher margin, lower mm -hmm. cost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, Quentin, I want to ask you. Uh, so, I mean, you've sort of hit one of the bigger branches, but not the trunk yet. If if is that an, an, uh, an appropriate analogy I'm of what you hit? I'm going to say we hit a mighty big branch, if not the trunk. Okay, if, you know uh -huh. when you start seeing uh, this kind of width and that kind of grade, yeah, you got to be pretty darn close. So I think I think we figured it out. I think this is it. 
All right. So, but this these are expensive holes. Um, how well financed is the company to go ahead? How much drilling will you be doing in the next? Um, well, through the end of this year into into twenty twenty one. Yeah, sure. We're going to have four rigs going. Uh, ultimately, here we got another. We'll call it deep rig coming in uh, right now. I think it arrives this week. So we'll have two deeper rig, deeper penetrating rigs, and then two shallow uh, type rigs. We we plan on drilling you know somewhere on the order of uh, fifteen to twenty thousand meters, uh, you know, on a, a yearly basis uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, so we have fifteen million in the bank. Of course, the company is doing a financing right now. Um, I, I'm, that's not my department, so I don't know yeah. where they're at exactly with it. But I think uh, everything's progressing quite, quite well. So, look, the company should have uh, plenty of cash. Uh, of course, the warrants are all in the money, which is a good thing. Uh, now, they also would like to to put in their the, the small mine. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's in the plans, and uh, you know, while I'm focused on exploration. You know, I know there's very concrete plans developing very quickly around putting in a mine, and I've urged them to look at putting a decline down, you know, to access this uh, this high-grade zone. I think this could be a very, very big uh, benefit to, to that kind of a, a scenario. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, as I look at it, I think something like 468,000 ounces, 9.7 grams per ton, with a 3-gram cutoff is the numbers I'm looking at. So that, I mean, do you see that possibility? It's not that often that... Uh, the companies can go from exploration to successful production, but of course, Wally Bachman's been looking to move in that direction before you you came along with your alkaline system. Um, so, you, I mean, I guess the goal would be to generate cash flows that can be used to finance the exploration of this much bigger system, right? Uh, in this case, I think it's attainable. Look, you don't hit grades like this too often. Uh, these are phenomenal grades, and you know the the thing is fully mine permitted, so they can put the mine in. Uh, I think there's, uh, you know, a, a very sharp focus by the Fijian government to see these kind of things happen, mm-hmm. jobs. So, look, I think the momentum's there. I think the, they got the team there. Uh, they got the support of the government. It's all systems go. And now now we have a high-grade discovery. You know, I mean, not higher-grade, I should say, discovery, right below the existing deposit. I mean, what, what better scenario could you get? Yeah, it, uh, it really is good. And, of course, uh, today... Notwithstanding today's decline in the, in the uh, gold price, it's still a rip-roaring gold bull market in my view. And uh, so we should be looking for, uh, I guess, looking for drill results uh, from time to time, right? When, when yeah. might we see some, the next ones? Uh, yeah, look, the, the announcement we had in uh, late July was the, kind of the, the feeders on it. It was actually higher in the hole. Uh, I think we figured out why it was, by the way. Um, so we've got some, you know, some news coming on the bottom of that hole, that, that hole. Uh, continued down to target depth, and then uh, we're we're now you know obviously we're drilling some more holes at the moment. So uh, I would say there's going to be a steady flow of news, probably some even in the you know short to medium term uh, coming up here. So okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Quentin, uh, for that update. It is really an exciting story, and uh, always good to follow what you're doing uh, with the various companies. But this is really a, a dandy. I love it a lot. I, I own it, and. Um, course it's one of my favorites in my newsletter as well thank you so much for being with us and uh, we'll look to talk to you again sometime soon thank you jay all right folks uh, we have to go to break but don't go away because doug nolan will be with us to pursue uh questions about the current status of the united states economy the markets uh, doug says there's no turning back now uh the fed can't do anything but print print and print so doug will be with us in just a moment uh, to talk about all that don't go away we'll be right back 
Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit NVGoldCore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Doug Nolan. Doug has been on the show a couple of times uh, in the past, not nearly often enough in my view, but he, uh, he is currently the portfolio manager for the Tactical Short Strategy at McIlvaney Wealth Management. Uh, many of you know David McIlvaney, who's been a frequent guest on this show, so uh, Doug and David work together. Uh, Previously, Doug served as a senior vice president and portfolio manager of Federated Equity Management Company um, and overseeing the Prudent Bear Fund. And uh, I've known uh, Doug for quite some time now. Uh, In the old days when he worked with David Tice uh, at uh, David W. Tice and Associates. Welcome, Doug, and thank you so much for joining me again. Hey, it's great to be back, Jay. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always good to have you. Um, You are... Uh, certainly uh, a person that knows these markets as well as anyone. Uh, you are, are very familiar with the credit markets, and uh, which leads me to ask you, you know, uh, Alistair McLeod is a frequent guest on this show, and he he likes to stress the point that, you know, everybody in the mainstream media, at least they talk about the business cycle. He says that's hogwash. It's not a business cycle. It's a credit cycle. He says that the, uh, the business uh, environment is driven by credit. It's not that credit is responding to business. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. And uh, it's a credit cycle. It's a financial cycle, and it's a cycle, you know, driven by uh, policymaking in particular. That's what makes this a lot different than you know the traditional business cycle that that we've read about throughout history. We've read about throughout history, but as almost since I've known you and David Tice, it seems like the interference, the intervention in the markets have gotten bigger and bigger with each cycle. Would you agree with that? Sure. And, you know, Jay, for me, you know, this has been almost a 30-year experiment uh, going back to the early 1990s with Alan Greenspan mm-hmm. when he started to, you know, tinker with monetary policy to to help the, the new type of finance that was expanding, the market-based finance, you know, asset-backed securities and derivatives and you know, all the marketable debt, and and it's it just took on a life of its own, and and the intervention has become more aggressive. It started with Greenspan at, you know, uh, you know, 
tinkering around uh, 25 basis point interest rates, and and now we're doing, you know, trillions in a of QE and in a you know not that many weeks. So it's it's been quite an evolution in policymaking. Well, we've got to do trillions upon trillions upon trillions now, not just to keep the banking system alive and keep it from falling and imploding, but also now in uh, in fiscal. Uh, I, I don't even want to call it stimulus because it seems like it's just money that's being created to try to keep a society, the social order in place. And it doesn't even seem as though they're doing that great a job in that regard, not far from where you live in Portland, Oregon. We've seen night after night disruptions with the with uh, Marxist groups that really don't have too much uh, good to say about a free market economy. Not that we've had one for any length of time. I mean, it seems like we've de- been departing from free market economics uh, more and more as time goes on. I, I think you would agree with that. And that's part of that, that policy uh, that the Federal Reserve has gotten involved with, right? That's correct. And, you know, I spend a lot of time, I've spent a lot of time over the years, uh, decades now, um, studying credit, right? And I was convinced that we had fundamentally changed finance in the 1990s and we created a bubble and this bubble has been inflating uh, you know, now for, for a long time. And the problem with bubbles is, you know, while they're inflating, it, it looks like everything's great. The economy is plugging along. The markets can be at all-time high, pe- highs. People feel wealthy. But at their heart, bubbles are mechanisms of wealth redistribution and wealth destruction. And we're seeing the bubble falter now, and, and we're seeing uh, society, you know, uh, a lot of stress in society because people feel that the system is not fair. And even in the last few months, we've seen, you know, uh, incredible stimulus, monetary and fiscal. Um, the markets have gone basically back to all-time highs, but yet most people in the country feel that uh, they're not sharing in in this policy stimulus, that the policy stimulus is directed at the markets supporting the wealthy. And unfortunately, they, they have a point, right? They have a point because years ago, the Fed changed the whole MO here as far as how they manage monetary policy. They used to tinker with rates to stimulate the banking system to lend more or to lend less, depending on their intentions. Well, they shifted and now they go directly to the markets. Uh, and again, it's that trillion number. And you know we're, we're seeing uh, the cost here with, with a lot of uneasiness in society. Uh, distrust in our institutions, distrust in, in the Federal Reserve and, and Washington policymaking generally, unfortunately. Yeah. So what tools do they have? They like The Fed likes to talk about tools in its toolbox as if it has some ability uh, to fool Mother Nature or to fool the, the markets, the natural forces of markets. This is such hubris, it seems to me, Doug. That, uh, and they like to talk about, oh, never mind, we, uh, we have this under control uh, you know, they said after Bernanke was convinced that they could return and normalize the balance sheet, or so he said he was convinced. I don't know if he really was. Uh, normalization of the Fed's balance sheet, is there a chance in a, you know, in a, in a, a snowball's chance in, in that hot place that that will ever happen? No, I don't think so. Um, if you get into a situation where all of a sudden you have a uh, the hedge funds and and I call it the leverage speculating community. If if they're putting on a lot of leverage again, 
then that gives the Fed the leeway to pull back on its balance sheet some. It's it's almost like the you know the hedge funds can create their own liquidity, so the Fed can pull back some of the liquidity that they put into the system. Uh-huh. But that will reverse very quickly the next bout of de-risking, deleveraging that we have. We saw in March how quickly this unravels. When you get a risk off, when you get the hedge funds, the derivative players de-risking, deleveraging, there are no buyers. And it's the Fed and the global central bank community that are basically the buyers of the last resort, the liquidity creators. And, you know, so they'll have to be, they'll have to come right back with, with trillions more of, of liquidity. So I don't think they can get out of this now. They're, they're trapped by the, the enormity of the, the global speculative leverage that we got a hint of in, in March. And I'll, I'll add that the Fed acted so quickly, right? It was, yeah. it was like 10 sessions from all-time highs to, you know, emergency meetings and liquidity injections. So they were able to stop or halt this de-risking, deleveraging. But in the future, I don't think it, it will be so easy to to reverse that. But, you know, we'll see. You think they, they've learned something uh, in terms of the need to act quickly to get out ahead of it um, from 2008? And so this time they were more prepared, ready to jump on it aggressively. Correct. And I, I would actually say they, they learned a lot from 1994. 1994 was the last actual tightening cycle that they had. And, and they learned in 1994 that things can spiral out of control quickly. So it after 1994, they only moved very, very gradually. They signaled to the markets that you know they won't do anything to upset the markets. And you know, let's let's face it. Now we're we're a year into QE. QE didn't yeah. start in March. QE started last September, mm-hmm. and that's when they came out with this so-called insurance, uh, you know, the insurance stimulus, where they were saying, okay, we we've got to act aggressively and quickly. Um, and all that did was throw gas on 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 the speculative fire, you know, last fall. That that led to an even more difficult uh, dilemma for the central banks in March when that part of the bubble started to unravel. Yeah, it was last September. I think the repo problem uh, is what sort of triggered and caused some people to start wondering and thinking that maybe we we're approaching some real issues again. Uh, I will wonder, Doug, how high did the tenure get when we finally? How do, I think 10-year or, or whatever interest rate you want to look at, what what was the breaking point back in, in March about? about where, where did we, I mean, what was, how far, how high did rates get to in, in this attempt to renormalize the balance sheet? Yeah, I wish I had my uh, Bloomberg screen in front of me right now. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But from well, memory, well, I'm thinking. Four, we were over 3%. Yeah. Um, the yields had started to come in. Um, it, you know, earlier this year, because you know the uh, the, the safe haven markets, they uh-huh. they sensed fragility out there. Yeah, um, which they often do. And and let's let's face it, the although the safe haven yields are up today, but um, you know, in the spite of you know equities rallying back to record highs, and despite corporate credit booming. The safe haven yields have stayed remarkable, remarkably low. Basically, the ten-year yield, all-time lows, just you know, a couple, few sessions ago. So I think they're signaling that that there's a lot of fragility out there, and that I, I look at the safe havens as uh, confirming my bubble analysis. The safe uh-huh. haven yields are so low because 
they recognize this is a bubble. The stocks are stocks when they turn speculative are very short term focused. The safe havens, be it the precious metals or uh, you know the boons or or the treasury yields, they they look out longer term. They don't care about the next few weeks or even a few months. They they see troubles on the horizon, and mm-hmm. and that explains yields. We saw the same thing back in you know 07, 08, where you know the safe havens started playing their own game, ignoring booming stocks. Who uh, who in the world is buying treasuries now, and and why would you buy them? Well, they're uh, you know they're a safe haven. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. They, they, you know, the Fed injects liqu- you know trillions of dollars of liquidity into the system, right? So. Yeah. That liquidity has to go somewhere. Um, yeah. The Fed bought an enormous amount of treasuries, and you know institutions. Uh, you know there there are buyers out there that don't trust corporate credit or don't trust equities. And there's the view that the treasury yields are that treasury bonds are a hedge. Also, that uh-huh. if you own stocks, if you own some treasuries, then that protects you against potential problems in in the equity market. I I think it's one of the worst risk reward trades out there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the yields are so unappealing, uh, but all this money has to go somewhere, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you got negative real real yields. I, I guess you could say that with confidence, and then Correct. and then you have to pay taxes on the interest that you make on those uh, on those instruments. So I just wondered, you know, I, I guess you have to. The money has to go somewhere, as you say. And, uh, but who is buying the treasury? I mean, to what extent is the government financing the treasury market? I guess that's what, what I'd be interested in knowing. Well, that is the Fed. The Fed. I mean. Yeah, the Fed. Uh, of course. Yeah, they they've been an enormous buyer. They they basically monetized the, these massive deficits. Not the entire deficit this year, but they they all monetize a large part of it. Basically, you know, they they just go out and create new money to buy treasury uh, bonds. Um, so yeah, it's it's. You know, the Fed is by far the biggest buyer of treasuries, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so to what extent, I mean, COVID-19 comes along, and of course that really knocks the, the heck out of the, uh, you know, out of the economy. How bad do you think this economy is, Doug? Uh, well, Jay, I, I hope I'm wrong on this, but um, I think this has been, you know, the biggest bubble in the history of mankind, and it's been going on for decades, and there are just enormous imbalances in the economy. Uh, the financial market, it's an accident waiting to happen. Um, so I fear when this bubble bursts, and I, I'm not talking about a stock market bubble. That's one yeah. component of it, but it's corporate credit. It's, you know, treasury bonds. It's central bank credit. It's domestic. It's global, right? I call it the global government finance bubble, right? This bubble, it's gone to the heart of global money and credit. It's gone to central bank credit. It's gone to sovereign debt. So when this bubble blows up here, I think there's a real crisis of confidence, not only in policymaking and all this credit, but also in economic structure. And this, you know, this multi-decade experiment, I think, unfortunately fails and, and we're going to uh, have to rebuild out of it and, and create a different economic structure, a different financial structure. And it's, it's going to take, it's going to take a long time and it's, it's going to be really difficult, I fear. Yeah. Um, and it's global, it seems. It's not just the United States. It's not just the, the Western world. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the, the, the keys of, of over the past decade. And you know, I thought the bubble had burst in 2008, and mm-hmm. you know, in my my weekly credit bubble bulletin, and 
I think it was March or April of 2009, I had to change my story. And I, I started warning of the global government finance bubble. And to watch what's unfolded in China, where their banking system is, is basically gone from 8 trillion US dollars to 45 trillion. There's never been anything like this in history. Mm-hmm. So China is a, is a historic bubble that's it's increasingly vulnerable. The emerging markets have participated in this global bubble. Uh, so yeah, it's it's global. It's it's so much bigger than than the mortgage finance bubble from back in you know 2008 that that uh, blew up. So that's part of the the reason that, that I'm so concerned. And and again, Jay, this is back to this theme of bubbles are about you know wealth redistribution and destruction. Yeah. All yeah. of a sudden, geopolitical becomes a major issue. I, I you know we we briefly addressed the social stress from. The inequalities here in the U.S. Well, mm-hmm. we're starting to see the impact of of you know bubble trouble globally and and increasing animosity conflicts. You you're now seeing the U.S. and China rival rivals for you know global superpower status. Mm-hmm. So the, the ramifications from a bursting global bubble are are far-reaching. I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's. Uh... That really would be would seem to be the case, um, but still, the Fed has the, the printing press. It can print money. It seems almost indefinitely. Uh, Ray um, Dalio um, has recently talked about, you know, speculated what would cause it to break down. What would cause uh, the Fed to no longer be able to, uh, to to continue on doing what it's doing? It's got the printing press. It can always issue pieces of paper or issue digits. Uh, to pay off uh, whatever obligations the government has. Uh, but, you know, I saw uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth talk about uh, 13% increase in Chinese inflation, uh, food inflation. You were just talking about how the Chinese have been expanding their, their balance sheet, the financial system. Uh, at some point, you would think there would be a confidence lost in the system if those pieces of paper, those government transfer payments, still don't allow people to pay their rent and buy food at some point in time. Uh, that, God forbid, but that seems to be something that's really, certainly has crossed my mind a lot, given the exponential rate of credit and money creation. Uh, what are your thoughts? What could what could cause this thing to end, I guess is the question. Sure, and yeah, the perception in the market, and, and I think these perceptions always follow the stock market, right? So the stock market's yeah. <laughs> been on a huge run, so everybody's optimistic, and they think, okay, we can have fiscal and monetary stimulus, we can have trillions for forever, right? Well, I don't think the Fed is completely reckless. I don't think that they, they, they would plan on, you know, trillions at a whim. Mm-hmm. I think in Washington for fiscal policy, there's going to be, you know, we're, we're already seeing it. There's there's going to be some real disagreements. It's the Democrats and Republicans are not going to be able to sit down and agree on trillions of new fiscal stimulus and how it's uh, distributed, mm-hmm. right? So there's real political consequences there. Um, as far as the Fed, if we saw an uptick in inflation, I think they would they would get cautious. If, if the dollar if the down uh, turn in the dollar accelerates, I think the Fed would be more cautious with with QE. If bond yields reverse and, and move higher, that would put a lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve not to to be reckless with uh, money uh, money expansion, money printing. So there's a lot of things that 
can they can get in the way here. But I'll also say we've seen since March, the Fed creates all this money, and all it does is it makes this speculative bubble more intense. And to me, that's self-defeating, right? That's just creating a bigger problem. They can, you know, they can they can make the stock market go up, and 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 we can. You know, have more day trading and more more people can buy a call options and Tesla and 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 all of that, but all that does is create more fragility. So, I kind of think we're in the end game here, where they're they're throwing a lot of money at this to try to keep the bubble from imploding, but at the end of the day, I I don't think they're going to be able to control it because the speculative bubble is too big. It's global, and it only works when it's inflating. The next time we have a big downdraft in the downdraft in the markets, then we're right back in in a pickle. I think. Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine rising bond yields, as you said, uh, the risk-off uh, instruments. Uh, I guess the treasuries were were down and the rates were up significantly today. Is that right? And uh, I, I just can't imagine. I don't see how interest rates can rise at all, ever again, given the number, given the amount of debt. Uh, in the situation that we're in. So it seems to me as soon as the bond yields start to rise, the Fed has to almost get more involved and pump more money in the system, don't they? I think that's, that's the, yes. Realistically, yes. Um, we saw in March, we saw illiquidity in the treasury market in March. <laughs> there was a dislocation because yeah. of all the leverage that the hedge funds and the you know they, they have these different uh, different yield curve trades etc. and that started to unwind. And again, they they can they can make that bubble bigger, but I don't think that resolves anything. And Jay, you, we've argued you know f- for years now that all this money printing, all this monetary inflation, it's not part of the solution. It's part of the problem, yeah, right? Exactly. And 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 to think that that they're going to be able to get out of this muck, out of this mess oh, by expanding their balance sheet. It's not going they, to they, work. They can't do it. Doug, just real quickly, because we're out of time, what are you doing in your fund now? How are you preparing? What sort of things are you are you buying or what are you doing uh, in your in your hedge fund? Sure. Yeah, and, and it's not a hedge fund. It's actually it's a, separately managed accounts. So yeah, in McElvaney Wealth Management, we have our MAP strategy, which is along um, the, uh, you know, um, hard asset type plays. I am also managing the tactical short, which is yes. a hedging product, short market, and I'm just very defensive right now, just trying not to lose much. Yeah, right, exactly. Doug, thank you so much. Sorry to, to cut you off here because I know you had so much more to say, and we'll have to do it again sometime if you're willing to come back. Thank you so much. Always happy to be with you, Jay. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Doug. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Next week, as I said, Michael Oliver is my main guest. He'll be back uh, with me and Jim Gregg of Benchmark Metals. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Benchmark Metals is a gold-silver exploration company that is embarking on its largest program to date on the Lawyers Project with up to 50,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling planned in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. 
The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success.